I have a code, so if I sound a little sniffly, oh wait, I ruined it. I shouldn't. No, if if you hear me sniffling, it's because I'm passionate about this message. And <laughs> we are in uh, for this conference. We're going to be in Titus chapter two, verses six and seven. The text. Um, well, actually, I, sh- I guess I should start. My name's Sean Gibson. I'm the headmaster of the of the school here. And I guess by way of introduction, maybe I can uh, just share a little bit of my testimony. I was a jerk. I mean, I was lost, so I was a lost jerk. And uh, then Jesus came in, and by his grace and his mercy, he saved me. So now I'm a saved jerk. And so um, that's enough about me. Let's get to the text. It says in Titus, In all things show yourself to be an example of good works. In doctrine showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. My component is the first part, the exemplum bonarum operum, which means the example of good works. This morning I would like to take on three questions, the why, the what, and the how of good works. First we'll start with the why. Why do I need good works? You might be thinking, wait a minute, I'm a good Christian. I know my Bible. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. I mean, this is part of the five solas, correct? It's sola gracia, sola fide, solas Christas, uh, sola scriptura, sola deo gloria. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. I know my faith. So it's, I'm saved by grace through faith, not works so what are you talking about works and it's true that that this assertion is true we're saved by grace through faith and not by works but that is not the complete dissertation on the relationship between faith and works because the Bible says that there's some other aspects of faith that we need to understand one of those is there's more than one type of faith there is um, in James a different faith What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing or in need of food, and one says to him, go and be in peace, be warm to be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. So there's this idea that there can be a dead faith, a faith that is not unto salvation, it's just a dead faith. And it says that the result, the reason for that is that there's no works associated with it. That's not the only hazard in this relationship between works and faith, is that the idea is there's a dead faith. There's also maybe what we would call a hypocritical faith. That we don't adopt this current cultural um, lie. And that cultural lie is that if you believe something, it makes it true. That somehow just believing something makes it true. Um, that's tripe. That's nonsense. I can believe that I'm a woman. That doesn't make me a woman. I can believe I'm African-American. It doesn't make me African-American. I can believe that I'm seven foot tall. That doesn't change me. I can believe these things, but that doesn't make them true. In fact, the definition of truth, the definition of reality is that which exists whether you believe in it or not. That's what makes it true. It exists whether you believe or not. And sometimes we have a, there's a kind of, there's an atheist delusion. And the atheist delusion would be this. By the way, a delusion is believing in something that's not true, right? Um, At best, it's a fantasy. At worst, it's a delusion. 
The atheist delusion would be this. If I quit believing in God, he no longer exists. As if God is Tinkerbell or some kind of fairy. And that if we quit believing in him, his wings are going to fall off. And we have to clap our hands and say, I do believe, I do believe. It's not like that. God, believe, God exists. Um, we are surrounded with a testimony of his existence in the creation and, and, and in our lives. So he exists. That would be the atheist delusion. But there is a Christian delusion. And the Christian delusion is the one that I think we should focus upon. Because we gather in the name of Christ. And the Christian delusion is this. That somehow the God of life can come into me and yet my life doesn't change. Somehow the God of transformation comes into me but I am not transformed. Somehow the God of salvation enters me and yet there is no fruit of salvation in my life. That is a delusion. That is complete and total nonsense. If the God of holiness enters into me, there should be some corresponding holiness come out of me. So from that perspective, we've got to be careful that we don't adopt a Christian delusion. We should be biblically complete and whole in our understanding of the scriptures. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of works. But there's another verse. And we need to read Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. You see, it's true. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. But there is another true statement. We are saved by grace through faith for good works. Works do not bring us unto salvation. Works are the outpouring of salvation in our life. So works are an integral part of who we are as Christian men. In fact, consider the ultimate man, Christ. The incarnation that God came down and wrapped himself in flesh. He walked among us. Now he did this so that he might substitutionarily die upon the cross for our sins. But don't forget that for three years prior to the cross, he walked on the earth. And during that time, he had a message, and that message was simple, and it was clear, and he repeated it over and over again. And that message was this, follow me. He didn't just say, believe in me. He did say that. But he said, follow me. Jesus is the ultimate exemplum, the ultimate example of good works. But he's called us to be examples of good works. In fact, Jesus said if, <laughs> that it's, it's, it's integral with who we are. In Luke chapter 6, he says, Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? And then also in John 14, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. You see, the good works that come out of our life are, are pivotal. They're important. Because they are evidence that we have a living faith. They are evidence that we follow Jesus and that we love Jesus. So hopefully I've beat that horse to death. We know why we need good works. That's the first question, why we need good works. Second would be, what are these works of God? There are three general categories of works of God. The first one, well, I'm saying this. I believe there are three categories uh, from the scripture. The first one it would be the works of witness. This deals with our character. We've been given one life, and that life is to be employed 
for the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. We are here for the kingdom of God. That's why we've been given a life. And for the Christian, that means that once we understand this, there is no such thing as a secular component of our life. There is no non, everything in our life is sacred. Everything we do is sacred. It's not just what we do. You may be a plumber or a construction worker. It's not just what you do, but it's how you do it. That's important because everything we do is sacred. It says in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward. An inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. As Christians, we need to be concerned with the quality and the character and the ethics of what we do. That means that our Christian faith, there is no, there's nothing that should be left untouched by it. Our Christian faith should address our entertainment choices, how we do our taxes, um, how we speak to other people, how we speak to our wives, how we speak to our children. Uh, the, the idea is Jesus in our life is supposed to transform us. We all knew what we were, and we weren't good. And the idea is that when Christ comes in, it changes everything. Not just the church component of our life, but every component of our life. Everything we do should be changed by Christ. It's our witness. Titus 2, verses 9 through 10 say, urge bond slaves, that would mean employees, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything they do. So Christians show up on time to work. They don't leave early. They don't pilfer from the office. And they don't bend the rules to serve themselves. There's a reason. Nobody wants to know the law. Uh, nobody wants to know the God of a liar or the God of a thief or God of a pervert. Nobody cares about that God. We're to live a testimony in front of people that they might consider who are you and who is your God. We don't participate in rude jokes. We don't participate in sinful activities because that's not who we are. We represent the character of Christ. We represent a counterculture. We represent those who are not of this world. But that's not where it stops. That is the first work. That's the work of our witness or of our character. The second work is the work of evangelism the work of the gospel. Matthew 5 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Whereas our character and our conduct is a general witness to God, we also have a specific witness to God, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't just live the witness. We need to speak it out. Um... I have a dear brother named Tom Donaldson, and he shared with me the way he prayed, and it really struck me. I thought this was really cool. This is what he told me. He says, I pray God gives people I encounter a need I can meet so I can share Christ with them. That's good. I can repeat that because it's really good. He says, I pray God would give the people I encounter a need I can meet so that I can share Christ with them. That is a powerful, dangerous prayer. I like that prayer a lot. Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever you do, in word or in work, 
Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So from that perspective, we also have to be able to specifically share the gospel. It's not enough to live a different life. When people notice, we've got to be able to share with them the gospel. And so can you share the gospel? There's a lot of ways to do it. There's a lot of very well thought through ways to present the gospel. Um, there is life in six words. That's from Dare to Share. And it uses the word gospel as an acronym for sharing the gospel. It's really good. Um, there is uh, the bridge illustration. And now I think it's called the one verse uh, method that's put out by the navigators. An excellent way to share the gospel. There is the WDJD from the way of the master using the Ten Commandments to bring conviction upon the heart. Great way to share the gospel. There is the sidewalk chalk gospel. There's the paper tear gospel. There's the hand gospel. There is the um, four spiritual laws. There's, there's a lot of ways to share the gospel. Can you share the gospel? If not, Google it spend some time, figure it out, and be able to share the, the reality, the truth of the good news clearly and succinctly. We have to be able to get the good news after to, out to people. Um, and, and here's the reason. I have some people, maybe you've heard this. I've heard this. Somebody will go, well, I let my life be my testimony. Well, that's your witness, yeah, but that's not the gospel. I mean, it's not like one day you're going to be out mowing your lawn, your neighbor's going to come run over, fall on his knees and go, what must I do to be saved? You mow your grass like a maid. They're not going to do that. Nobody's going to come up and just because, I mean, hopefully you live a life in such a manner that people come up to you and go, man, you're different. But at that point in time, you've got the opportunity to share with them the good news that will save their soul. And so we must be equipped, gentlemen, to be able to share the gospel. Now, that's the second work. The third work is we're still not done. There is the work of discipleship. This is the law of reproduction. In teaching, I will ask um, students, how do you know something's alive? How do you know if something's living? And you'll come up with different things. Well, if, if it moves. It's like, well, lava moves, but that doesn't mean it's alive. Well, living things are green. I'm like, I'm alive, I'm not green. Well, living things breathe. Well, there's chemical reactions that breathe. There's respiration and epoxies and stuff like that. That's not what it is. And so you go and you go until finally you come to the conclusion, what, distinct, what makes something distinctively alive is it reproduces. It reproduces itself, otherwise it would no longer be alive. There has to be some sense of reproduction. And when I'm, when I'm using this, um, understand that I'm not just talking about giving birth to something, but you have to reproduce it to the point of maturity. You wouldn't call a man who just sires children on, this, on the corner of every sidewalk a dad or a man. You would call him a menace because he may be procreating, but he's not discipling. He's not reproducing himself in someone else. To reproduce yourself in someone else, you have to invest in them. You have to have a relationship with them. You need to pour into them. And we need to do the same thing as Christians. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 says this. So then while we have an opportunity, let us do good works to all people, but especially those who are of the household of the faith. If our faith is living, we should be reproducing Christ through ourselves in others. In fact, it's supposed to go quite a ways. Um, there's 2 Timothy 2, 2, 
And this is Paul talking to Timothy. Paul is the first generation Christian in this situation. And he's talking to Timothy, who's the second generation Christian. And he says this, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Timothy, share these with faithful men, the third generation, who will be able to teach others also, the fourth generation. There's four generations in that one verse. Paul is telling Timothy, the things that I pour into you, you give to faithful men who will be able to give to others also. We are supposed to be reproducing and raising up disciples after us. So are you ready for a stinging question? How many disciples do you have? And how many disciples are they making? Because until they start making disciples, you haven't made a disciple and I haven't made a disciple. Not until they're making disciples. Then we can say we're disciple makers. You see, it's, 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 we have to be thinking, especially as men, we are the provisionaries. We are the ones who are to provide. And that word is pro, meaning ahead, vision, to look ahead. We as the men are supposed to be looking ahead in our culture, in our homes, in our church, in our civilization, to try to be able to make an effect after we're dead. We're supposed to be the ones who have that kind of vision. We need to be looking not just to one generation, but to two generations, to three generations, to four generations. Because those are the promises of God come in those four generations. It's pretty cool. So, the works. The works of God is that we're to be a witness in all that we think, say, and do. We're to speak to the gospel to everyone we get a chance to tell. And we're to pour our life into our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, in short, if your life doesn't reflect the character of Christ, repent. If you don't know how to present the gospel, repent. If you don't have any disciples, repent. Because these are the works of God. These are what we're called to do. So now we know why we're to do the works. Now we know what the works are. But how are we going to do them? Well, praise the Lord that we don't have to rely upon our own brains and our own biceps to make this happen. That would be pretty abysmal. But God has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And specifically, he gave us four things I see in the scripture for the purposes of us being able to do good works. The first of these is Jesus gave his life to inspire us to good works. Titus chapter 2 says this, Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people zealous for good works. We are to be inspired by the one who gave his life for us. I'm going to tell you a story um, to, make, to hopefully bring this home a little bit. There was a man named Maximilian Kolb. He was a priest um, in the 40s and 30s. And he assisted people who were fleeing the Nazis in oppression. In fact, um, in his friary, and it, um, they had uh, helped over 2,000 Jews. Well, the Gestapo found him. They arrested him, and they brought him to Auschwitz, where they made him prisoner number 16770. And they placed him in one of the worst blocks in Auschwitz. It was a horrendous series of conditions to live in. And one day, one of the prisoners was missing from that block. And so to teach the block a lesson, the guards pulled out 10 men to be placed into a room to starve to death. It's a horrible way to die. Tongue cleaving to the roof of your mouth, your brain on fire, 
they would be given no water, no food, until they died. Later on, they found the missing prisoner. He had been drowned in the latrine, but they didn't repent of their lesson. And so as they are calling out the names of the ten men, one of the men cried out, My wife, my children, what will they do without me? And at that point in time, Maximilian Kolb stepped up and he asked permission that he could take the place of that gentleman. The Nazi commander, obviously seeing an opportunity, exchanged the life of a young, healthy male for that of an old, decrepit priest. And he, and he allowed it. He says, yes, you may. And so the ten of them went down into this holding cell. But having that priest in there made all the difference. Because this hadn't been the first time that they had exacted this type of a punishment. But unlike times before where all they heard was crying and misery and moaning and wailing, now all they heard was prayers and the singing of hymns. For Maximilian basically spent the last breath of his life ministering to those men. After 10 days, they decided it was taking too long and that they needed that room for other nefarious purposes. And so they went down. Um, now, don't get me wrong. They're singing praises, but it's not to say that they were not suffering. For testimonies from those who serviced the room said that they would go down for the latrine bucket and it never had urine in it because the men drank their own urine to try to slate their thirst. They suffered, but they suffered under the prayers of this man. And when they went down after 10 days, there were only four clinging to life. Three of them were completely unconscious. The only one who still maintained consciousness was Maximilian Kolb. And as they came to administer an injection of uh, carbonic acid to kill him, he looked up calmly at his executioner and he rolled over and presented his arm to him. And he died. August 14, 1941. But that's not the end of the story. What about the man who was saved? The man that he stood in the place of, he lived up into his 90s. I'd like to tell you his name, but I cannot figure out how to pronounce it. It's a Polish name, and it's really long, and I tried, but let's call him Greg. <laughs> this man lived into his 90s. He survived the war, and he never ceased to proclaim the name of Maximilian. He pressed in to make sure that he got sainthood, and every year he would go back to Auschwitz to pay homage to the man who gave his life in his place. In fact, the room in which they died in is now a chapel. And this is based upon this man, Maximilian, I mean, uh, the man who Maximilian saved, continuously proclaiming his name to anybody who would listen, the one who gave his life in his place. Now, the reason that I share that is there's obvious parallel with Christ, right? But we as Christians talk about the crucifixion so often that I'm afraid that we get to the, the possibility of normalizing it, making it less than it is. We need to remember that this is the most radical event ever in time and space. The God of the universe came down to die in our place. And maybe you need to think back prior to Christ. Or you're scratching out some kind of an existence in the darkness of your own understanding. Feeding on the refuse of your own self-righteousness. I know that was me. And I found that inside myself, there was nothing that gave me peace. 
So I started to look outside myself. You probably did too. Something for purpose, for meaning, for some reason to my existence to bring me some joy in this cruel joke, which was my life. And I found, and we look all different places, don't we? We look, sometimes we look to drugs or we look to alcohol or we look to bad relationships or we look to a, a job or a title or money or, or status. But we look outside ourselves for something and we're grasping at straws, desperately putting way too much uh, weight on those things. They can't hold up. They're not God. So once again, we still find ourselves in that dark place. And it moves from frustration to depression. And in that darkness, while we're still using God's name as a curse word and as an obscenity, and while we still blaspheme him, he's continuously reaching out to us saying, my son, I love you. And then when we allow him in, everything starts changing. That is glorious. He gave his life in our place. And now there should not be a day goes by that we don't proclaim the majesty of Jesus and what he's done for us. He died in our place to rescue us from ourself. Because I don't know about you, I also blamed everybody else for my pain. I blamed the government. I blamed my parents. I blamed um, the people around me, the man. But the blame was mine. It was my sin that was killing me. And Jesus is the one who took it away. And so what is too much for him to ask of me? He can ask anything he wants. Jesus gave his life to inspire us to good works. But he didn't stop there. He gave us his word, the scriptures, to equip us for good works. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. He gives us his word to equip us for good works. We've been given the answer book to every question in life. Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? What is the problem with everything? What is the solution to everything? It's all in here. It talks about how to do marriage, how to have family, what do we do about money, what about government, suffering, pain, everything is in here. We've been given the answer book, but we've got to palm it. We've got to know this book. It's not enough to own one. It has to penetrate us. We have to palm it. We have to know it. You can have the most amazing exercise equipment in the world. It could be the most technologically advanced exercise equipment in the world, and we can still be weak, fat, easy-to-kill couch potatoes. We've got to use it. We've got to know the word. He gave us the word that we might be able to do good works and this will make you wiser than your instructors. There is a lifetime worth of wisdom in this book, but we've got to know it. So he gives us his life. He gives us his word. And he also gives us the church to stimulate us unto love and good works. Now this is one that for whatever reason in this time and space, maybe in reaction to previous generations, we feel the liberty to diss the church. We feel the liberty to just go after the church and really kind of disrespect it. We don't seem to hold the church up uh, as much of a, a gift. But Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stimulate one another. That means the brothers and sisters in Christ to love and good works. Um, <laughs> we as the church, we're called the bride of Christ. We're called the children of God. I don't know about you, but I know me. 
And if somebody was to come up to me and say, man, Sean, I really like you, but your wife, I can't handle her at all. I mean, you're cool, but your wife is annoying. I'm not going to like that person. In fact, I'm going to say, I'm going to sin. I'm, I am. I'm just going to sin if somebody was to do that. If somebody came up and said, man, Sean, I think you're really cool, but your kids, man, I don't like your kids. Then I don't like you. You can't diss my children. You can't diss my wife and then expect that you're going to be close to me. And I don't know where we believe that we can get off turning around and dissing the bride of Christ or dissing the children of God. How in the world do we have the audacity to do that? I mean, I get it. You know, you can come up and go, yeah, but you, did you ever notice that your, you know, your wife, she's got a lazy eye or she's got a withered limb or she's got this or the, your children have this? Did you know your children have acne? It's like, yeah, are you seriously that superficial? Can you not see past the ravages of this planet upon them? Can you not see into them and see the beauty that is who they are? Can you not see the beauty of my children? Then don't talk to me. Can you not see the beauty of my wife? Then don't talk to me. You're not my friend. Because you can't see the things that are most beautiful to me. How can you say you, you love me or you know me or you have any fellowship with me? And so how in the world are we supposed to come to God and go, well, but God, did you know your church is hypocritical? Like he doesn't know that. Did you, know, did you know how ugly your bride is? I mean, come on, look around him this morning, right? You know, it's pretty obvious. But the Lord says, no. I see my sons. And I adore my sons. So I don't believe that we have any business um, dissing the church. And this is what I would like to tell you. Uh, this is kind of, kind of the application component in this. Some of you out there may be between churches right now. Uh, you need to fix that really quick. It's just like being between jobs. You don't just hang out between jobs. Well, I'm between jobs. How long has it been? Oh, it's been about eight years. You, nobody's going to do that. If you're between churches, figure it out. And this is the way. If you've been saved longer than three years, you just find a church that teaches the Bible and loves the Bible. And then you plug in. Because you don't need the pastor to cut your meat for you if you've been saved that long. You should be able to do your own Bible study. You should be plugging into a church for the purposes of serving in that church. Now, um, I'm also talking to the young men here. I know we have some young men. I skipped the front part of the verse. The front of the part of the verse is, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all these things, showing yourself to be an example of good works. So young men, I don't care if you're 12 years old in here. You go, you find your youth pastor, you find your pastor, and you ask him a question like this. How can I serve? Make it simple, four words. How can I serve? And that's what all of us should do. How can I serve? And I don't care what the pastor said. Pastor says, man, you got to go through a class or you got to use deodorant or whatever the pastor says. Um, he says, you can serve here, but you got to do these things. Then you do those things and we plug in because we're the men. And we're to be about leading the church. We can't leave the church abandoned and somehow diss it and, and, and abdicate our responsibility to our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. This world hates our guts. Do you not see what's going on out there? They're passing referendums and laws every single day to try to choke us out. You guys want to get scared? Go watch this video. The video is uh, World Religions by Population from 1947 until today. It will wig you out. When you want to know why, 
what you just see happen in front of your eyes in four minutes, you wanna know why it's doing that? Go back, watch another video that was made 10 years ago, which was completely prophetic, which is called Muslim Def Demographics. It will explain exactly what's happening on this planet and it will make you pray. The world is not going to love us. They killed Jesus. Did they kill Jesus because they had a case against him? No, they killed him because they hated him. And so the issue here is we are, of course, we need to pour into our brothers and sisters and encourage each other that we might stand firm to do the good works of God. Um, where was I? How can I have good works? Okay, his life, his word, his church. Finally, Jesus gives us his stuff to execute good works. First Timothy uh, 6, 17 Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but to fix their hope upon God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now up to this point, you might have th be thinking like, well, I was tracking with you up to this point, but the truth is, uh, I'm not rich. And so I don't think this verse applies to me. So let me um, give you some facts. If you can pull down minimum wage in New Mexico, you're in the top 7% of the richest people on the planet. But maybe 7% is not enough for you. And you're like greasy greedy. You're nasty greedy and you want to be in the top 1% of the wealthiest people on the planet. You want to leave the 99% behind. Then you're going to have to pull down $16 an hour. You're going to have to make 32 k a year. And if you can make 32 k a year, you are of the filthy 1%. You make more than everybody else. So yes, this verse applies to you, and it applies to me. So how do we use what God has given us? I have a friend, his name is Edward Baldonado. Well, he died. Really good friend, big man. And gosh, it was about 20 years ago. Uh, just two blocks down here, we were in a hardware store. And uh, the Coke machine ate, ate his quarters. And so the owner of the store came around, used his key, and opened up the Coke machine at which point Edward pushed the owner out of the way, shoved himself into the middle of the Coke machine, started pulling out sodas. He goes, okay, now we got it. What do you want? You want a Coke? You want a 7-Up? You want a Dr. Pepper? What do you want? And he starts pointing to everybody in the store. And of course, the owner's kind of like this, but he's a friend, and he goes, I'm buying. And he starts grabbing, and he says, what do you want? What do you want? And he starts giving everybody sodas out of this machine. And of course, it kind of took people off guard, and so maybe only half of them took sodas. When it was all done, he had spent maybe 20 bucks on sodas. And I thought, that was brilliant. He just took an extremely forgettable moment in history. And I guarantee you, everybody in that store will remember that day. And what he did is the owner said, why are you doing this? And he says, Jesus bless me. I'm just passing it along. He took 20 bucks and he transformed that day for everybody who was in that store. And Jesus got all the glory. That's pretty shrewd. That's pretty good. So how can I have good works in my life? Well, we need to remember we're nothing. I'm a saved jerk. I'm nothing. But we need to remember the math. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So in Christ, I've been given everything I need. I've been given his life. I've been given his word. I've been given his church. And I've been given his stuff. And the reason that you and I have been given all these things is so that we might connect people to God 
another good friend. You see, I've been discipled by some really neat guys. Another dear friend of mine, his name is Tom Grady. He's a big man. He was a scary man. I was always scared of him. He's a big guy, strong. And he got cancer. And it took him. And so he was in the hospital. He was a shadow of his former self. And he was laying there, the death rattle in his breathing. And I'm standing beside his bed. And he grabs my arm. And he grabs my arm with a power that was shocking. In fact, it was painful. And he's squeezing my arm. And he sits up in the bed. And he looks me in the eyes, his bloodshot eyes. He looks me in the eyes. And he says, Sean, remember, only two things go beyond the grave, people and the word of God. And with that, his hand went loose. He fell back into the pillow, and the death rattle took over. He was dead within an hour. I will remember that statement. Because when somebody chooses their last words, they choose them wisely, don't they? Only two things go beyond the grave, people and the word of God. We have to quit looking at Christianity the way that it's been looked at by some. It's how somehow we gather for, for uh, self-improvement. That Christianity is going to improve my life here on earth. Christianity is not a means for self-improvement. Christianity is a reason for self-sacrifice. We are supposed to be delivered from this world when we ask Jesus in. And now my life is for the purposes of giving the good news to people and to be able to connect people to the word of God because that's the only thing that goes beyond the grave. Our houses will turn to dust. Our cars will turn to rust. Our technology is going to be outdated within months. And all of the little trinkets and baubles that you and I have collected, they will go in an estate sale for pocket change. There is nothing that we do on this planet that matters except for connecting people to God. That is the only eternal thing on this planet. Jesus gave us everything we need to follow him out loud in the flesh on this earth while we're breathing. If we miss this opportunity, that is a grievous sin. Jesus was the ultimate exemplum, the ultimate example of good works, and he's called us to be the example of good works, that we might bring the lost unto heaven. Um, there's, I don't know, 300, 400 of us here, which is awesome. Praise be unto God. But we're three or 400 out of the three or 4,000, right? Right now, we're, we're the ones who, who gathered here today. So um, let's get personal. This should not be an, a, a message just to like go, hmm. We should be making some decisions. I'm, I'm hoping that you're going. I know that the Lord probably convicted you at some point about is your life uh, representing his character. Whatever it was that he put his finger on, you need to make a little note in there. You can put it in code so nobody else knows what it is. But whatever it is that Jesus is, is pointing out in your life that needs to be repented of, you need to repent of that. You need to be able to share the gospel. If you haven't shared the gospel, if you know the gospel, you should make a date. You should write a date in that notebook that says that within the next week who you're going to share it with. If you've never shared the gospel before, we'll give you two weeks. A week to figure it out and a week to make it happen. Which truthfully is much more than you need. You're men. You could get it done in hours, but we'll give, we'll give ourselves some, some room, wiggle room. But you should be marking down, man, this is who I'm going to be telling the gospel to soon. 
And then if you don't have disciples, you should be praying and asking the Lord who it is that you're supposed to be discipling and pouring yourself into. And that's not just a Bible study. That's sharing your life with them. That's doing part of this in public, right? It's not just here in the cloister. It's that we're actually discipling. You're hanging with somebody. You're, you're helping them. You're, you're doing something. You're living with them publicly. You're imparting who you are to them. These things should be put down there because these are the works that we've been called to do and we need to recognize what we have. We should be really good with the word. And so if you are not really good with the word, you should be writing down things that you're going to do that's going to rectify that. We're men. We know how to get things done. We need to make these things happen. And I, I guess what I'm saying is that if these three, if the three or four hundred, if we would catch this fire, us who are sitting in this room right now today, what would the state be like? I firmly believe in what John Wesley said. He said, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not one straw whether they be clergymen or laymen, but such alone shall shake the gates of hell and shall set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. He was saying 100 would change the earth. What would three, 400 do to this state? The world should change. There's too many people out there dying and going to hell. You and I and the power of the Holy Spirit should change that. Father, we praise you and we thank you. Lord, we ask that you would awaken us to our destiny. Lord, you would ignite a fire unto us for our call, that you would strip away the deceptions, the distractions of this world, that you would open up our eyes to see every hardship and every blessing for what they really are as opportunities, every dollar, every skill, every day, every breath. Lord, help us to connect people with you. Lord, help us to do this well, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.